Philemon, sandwiched between Titus and Hebrews. I feel this morning as though we have intercepted a letter that was not meant for us, and yet it is. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because of the hearts of the saints. They have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner... Accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me, even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, thank you for preserving this letter. And for the time that we will spend in it, I ask that you will grace us with your spirit of revelation, of understanding. Draw us near to you in these things, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on Shabbat and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Indeed, freedom encompasses the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the whole point. Liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, Jesus quoted Isaiah. That is the good news. Freedom like no freedom anybody can or has ever fully understood outside of Jesus. He said in John 8.31, If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom. Liberty. 
That is what our faith is about. Not captivity. Not enslavement. But clearly the freedom that Jesus talks about goes far beyond condition or circumstance. Clearly this is a freedom that that moves in the spirit and in the heart of a person. However, sometimes even ambassadors of the gospel find themselves in chains. Discover that they are prisoners for and by the very message of freedom that they bring. And that's where I say the freedom of Christ is far beyond circumstance. We must not be confused when we find ourselves in a position of imprisonment of one kind or another. You are still free in Christ Jesus. It is not an easy concept to understand as we go through life. Because we have all kinds of imprisonments. Paul knew multiple imprisonments, did he not? Paul was often imprisoned for and because of the gospel. Prior to his faith in Jesus, that was not a problem for Paul. He was putting people into prison. But it wasn't an issue for him. And then he meets Jesus on that road to Damascus. It changes his life. The next thing you know, Paul is landing in prison. Paul knew prison in Philippi, in Ephesus, in Jerusalem, in Antipatris, in Caesarea, and twice at Rome. And he alludes to so many, not specifically named. But what's wonderful is Paul wore his chains as badges of honor. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12, he said, My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I mean, what heart! What passion for the gospel! He writes from prison that his imprisonment is a better benefit for the kingdom. That it encourages others to stand firm in their faith. That it's allowed now the whole entire Praetorian Guard to hear the gospel. Because as you will find out, the guard was chained to Paul. So they had to listen to him. They had to watch as he wrote his letters. Listen as he met with people. Remarkable. And Paul was encouraged by this. He even calls himself in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 20, an ambassador in chains. By the way, you need to make a little notation in your scriptures if you will. Philemon verse 9, he writes, For love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And I don't think the aged is a good translation there. In my Greek scholarliness, The word there is literally presbutes. It's where we get our word elder, presbyteros. And the reason why it's translated aged is it has to do with being older, with being an elder, but it's more of a a word of overseeing, and that same word is used in other places as ambassador. And I believe that's what Paul's saying. It makes more sense. Uh, I'm Paul, the ambassador, and also the prisoner. Why does it say aged then? Well, the word can be translated that, and oftentimes throughout Rome, ambassadors were older men. Because they had the wisdom, they had the life experience. I'm only beginning to understand that. I mean, because I'm still really young. It can go either way. Again, because ambassadors need to have experience. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, gives us more insight from Paul. Ambassador, prisoner, honestly, it was all the same to him. He said, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but, and here's the key, the Word of God is not imprisoned. You can imprison my body. You can imprison me circumstantially in any manner of ways, but you cannot imprison the Word of God. You can draft laws that state that the Word of God cannot be preached. You can tell people that they can't live out their faith overtly in their life, in their business, but you cannot chain up the Word of God. And this was Paul's great passion and Paul's great hope. So I want to ask you a question before we even get back to Philemon, which we will. Does your temporary imprisonment serve as a platform for the eternal gospel? 
What do you mean, my imprisonment, Rick? Listen, you may feel changed to a pointless job. That may be your imprisonment. You may be in a position where you are imprisoned, if you will, in a difficult marriage. You may find yourself yourself bound by some physical issue, some pain, some long-standing illness, and you're saying, why God? Why do I have to have these chains? Do you view your chains as an opportunity for the advance of the Gospel? See, Paul did. Now, his chains were literal. Ours can come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, but we can choose how we wear our chains. We can choose how we respond to whatever bonds are put on us, either as bonds of hopelessness and despair or as badges of honor for the sake of Christ Jesus. It is the flesh that says, I alone am in this prison. That's the flesh. The Spirit says the Word of God cannot be chained. The Word of God can flow through me regardless of my position in this world. Besides the fact that my position in this world is temporary. How often do we fight for position in this world when it's position that's just not going to last? It's temporary. And I say this to every follower of Jesus Christ with ears to hear. We are here for Him. We are here to proclaim His Word, not to advance ourselves. So if you are in a prison, be it a prison of the body, a prison of the mind, a prison of circumstance, whatever it is, if you are in prison, ask God how from that prison the Word can go forth. You see, Paul was in prison. We are entering the prison letters now of Paul. Four letters written all during his first confinement, we believe, in Rome. His confinement in Rome was interesting. After that first confinement, we believe he was released and he went on to do some more ministry before three, four, maybe five years later, he was rearrested, brought back to Rome and ultimately executed there. This is the first imprisonment. Let's get a sense of his writing conditions before we come to the letters. Go back to Acts chapter 28 in your Bibles. Just a few books to the left. Acts 28. We pick it up in verse 16. You know as we studied through Acts, if you were here, that the last several chapters are Paul basically making his way to Rome on the taxpayer's dime, (laughs) being brought in chains as a prisoner to Rome. And in verse 16, it says, When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I, listen, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Can you say that? I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? Not what, who? Jesus Christ. Mashiach, the Messiah, the hope of Israel. Now skip on down a little ways to... Oh, verse 30. And he stayed a full two years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Wait a minute, I thought he was in prison. He was. House arrest. It was approximately 62 A.D., Paul was there chained up 24-7 in four-hour shifts to soldiers of the elite Praetorian Guard. 
They would come in and they got to change out and go home and, and take their breaks and whatever. But there was always a soldier chained to Paul. When he slept, when he ate, when he wrote his letters, when he met with people, when he preached the gospel, to the point, as we read in Philippians, that the entire Praetorian Guard had heard the gospel. It's marvelous. <laughs> this is how God works. 10,000 in the Praetorian Guard. And they all heard the gospel. Word got around about this Paul. And I start to wonder if there were guys in the Praetorian Guard saying, hey, can I get assigned to Paul this afternoon? I'm just curious. It's always interesting when we're with Paul. When we're chained up to him. What would it have been like if they had been chained to Paul and listened to him as with, I imagine, many prisoners moaning and griping and complaining and frustrated and angry. But instead, Paul's just praising God. Paul's just preaching the gospel. Paul is sending out letters, and again, we have four of them now. It was from this position, chained to these guards, that Paul hand-wrote a most personal one-page jewel of a letter to a beloved fellow worker in Colossae, whose name was Philemon. And you might note that Philemon was of the church of the Colossians. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, writes, Most Christians have never studied Philemon. I'm curious, how many of you have ever studied the letter of Philemon? Okay, very few of us have. A few, raise your hand, some kind of halfway, because you want credit. I get that. (laughs) Many people have never even heard Philemon preach from the pulpit. Why would you? It's just kind of a skip-over letter. We read through it as we're doing our Through the Bible in a Year reading. And Mu writes, it is short, it's private, it's obscure. Scholars are not quite sure what this is all about. No wonder it suffers from neglect. And yet I can tell you in the last few weeks of pouring over this letter, I, I love it. I love this letter. I am amazed by it. It's one of only two letters in the entire New Testament that are as deeply personal. The other one is Third John where it's written literally from one person to another. And you'll note this, we'll get into this later on, not not this morning probably, but you note that he writes to Philemon and then to Aphia, our sister, probably Philemon's wife, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, probably Philemon's son, and to the church that's in your house. But the letter is to Philemon because throughout it is directed directly to this brother. It is not written to anybody else. And some of what Paul shares, he shares as to a good friend, a brother in Christ Jesus. And Paul writes this letter as, as you go through it, you start to realize this is, this is very sensitively written. I mean, absent are, are the bold and forceful words that we are accustomed to coming from the Apostle Paul. This is a man who is now trying not to offend, who is being very gentle in his approach. This is a note to a friend. And we need to read it that way. We're going to come at the the letter to Philemon in two different ways. This morning we're going to take a personal approach. We're going to look more at the heart of the letter and, and maybe try and understand the background of it a little bit better. And then a week from Wednesday, we're going to take an expositional approach where we will go verse by verse and walk it through like we do so much of the Scriptures. Meanwhile, uh, between this morning and a week from Wednesday, I'm going to Wisconsin to see my grandson. So, yay. Two questions now as we get started with the letter to Philemon. Number one... Why is it here? What is it doing in the Bible? Included in the authoritative, spirit-inspired canon of Scripture, Philemon is here. Why? And secondly, why are we studying Philemon now instead of Ephesians? I mean, Rick, you're messing us up! It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon's way down the line. Why jump ahead? Well, understand again that... Philemon is one of the four prison letters. And as I prayed about this and read through this, I I realized that these four letters need to be taken together. You could almost put them together in one book. Written from the same place, from Rome, from Paul's imprisonment there, at the same time, in the same year, we believe, all within 62 A.D., Possibly 61, but we'll just go with 62. 
And there's good internal and thematic evidence that Philemon was written first, or at least written simultaneously with Colossians. And then Ephesians was written. And then finally, of the four prison epistles, Philippians. If you study through, you begin to see this. And I will point this out as we go through all four of the letters. Philemon and Colossians, both written to people in Colossae, because Philemon was of the church of Colossae. And then Ephesians, because the letter to the Colossians builds up and finds this this culmination in Ephesians. So it, it, it goes in that direction. And then fi- finally, uh, Philippians was last of the bunch. And there's writing in Philippians that, that gives that indication. Philemon and Colossians, by the way, were both carried together. Sent again to that same location, the town in the Lycus River Valley, which is western Turkey today, called Colossae. Colossae is right between two other cities you may have heard of, Hierapolis. You definitely have heard of Laodicea. Colossians was, or Colossae was right in the middle. So that's, that's the location to which this was sent. But listen from the letter to the Colossian church. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. Colossians 4, 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. So Paul says, I'm sending Tychicus and Onesimus with this letter, this letter to the Colossian church, because Onesimus is from there. Tychicus and Onesimus are the couriers of Colossians and of Philemon. Onesimus, being from Colossae, one letter written to the church there, the other to a friend there, that is Philemon. And so, as we open up the letter to Philemon, sent in the hands of this Onesimus, there are three key players you need to be aware of. There is Paul, writer of this very private missive. Then there is Philemon, who is the recipient of this letter. And the second courier and runaway slave, Onesimus. The runaway slave. From what we can gather reading the letter, here's the story. Onesimus belonged to Philemon. Slavery, it was common in Rome. In fact, nearly half of the empire were slaves or indentured servants. In Colossae alone, probably a third of the population were slaves in this small town. So the recipient of the letter, Philemon, had become a Christian through the ministry of Paul at Colossae, probably during Paul's third missionary journey. And Philemon, this new believer in Christ and this now close personal friend of Paul, had a slave named Onesimus who took off, who ran away. Now you might say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. A a Christian with a slave? Why doesn't Paul condemn that? Why don't we read more condemnation of slavery in the Bible? Why doesn't Paul come hard against it? Why don't we read him commanding Philemon, you set free your, you want to be set free yourself? You set free Onesimus. And he doesn't ask him to do that in this letter. I point this out because it's a common criticism among skeptics of Scripture. Slavery. The Bible and slavery. They can almost accept that slavery in the Hebrew Scriptures is accepted just because it was in the culture and God put parameters around that. But man, when you get to the New Testament, by then, He should be condemning slavery. Why does He not? Let me give you a couple of reasons to consider. And it's interesting because we just now are the 50th anniversary of the internment camps in America the internment camp, the Japanese internment camps during World War II. 120,000 Japanese people, Japanese Americans living in our country in World War II were sent to internment camps during the war. Written by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And so that's kind of coming up and being recognized as having taken place. Of course, our own country's history with slavery is very dark. Why doesn't the gospel challenge Slavery. 
Let me give you a couple thoughts. Number one, the gospel transcends culture. The gospel transcends culture. I'll explain. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Paul writes, Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, he doesn't approve slavery. Neither does he condemn it. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. He does say, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. <laughs> Paul, why not say, Masters, free your slaves? But he doesn't. I think partially because Paul knows that freeing slaves in Rome would upend culture. You might say, what's wrong with that? Okay, it's a good question. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and with trembling in the, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Look, if you're an indentured servant, if you're a slave, serve as though you're serving Jesus. That's the prescription of the gospel. Where's the freedom in that? Why didn't Paul, the apostle of the heart set free, as F.F. Bruce calls him, why didn't he set out to free all slaves? And he did. With the freedom of the gospel. And this goes back to what we were saying about imprisonment before. Listen, prisoners and slaves are both enabled to be free by the gospel. And it may not change circumstance. You may find yourself coming to Jesus, giving your heart, your life to Jesus Christ, thinking now, finally, it's all going to come together and everything's going to be fine, only to find yourself waking up the next morning in the same prison you were in before. Or in a slavery position that you did not think you would know. And Paul would say, from that position, not only is the Word of God not chained, but you are free. Wrap your head around this. The freedom of the gospel that says, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Guess what, ladies? You're still ladies. (laughs) Guys, you are still men. Well, I thought when I became one in Christ Jesus that I would cease to... You know, you don't suddenly become gender neutral. You're still in the position you were in, but now you are free. Well, then I should be able to do whatever I know. It's a greater freedom than we recognize or realize in the flesh. You see, whatever a particular culture deems as common or acceptable, the gospel is always greater. The slavery that was acceptable in Rome didn't really matter. The gospel would would still continue and it would go out to slaves and to free men alike. And it didn't matter what your position in life was. You could still be free in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Rick, slavery isn't right. I agree. I abhor the thought. In fact, I disdain and I renounce the dehumanizing slavery of the past of our country and other countries around the world. You know, that, that is one difference I will point out. Slavery in America, how it was different than slavery in Rome. Slavery in Rome wasn't based on skin color. Slavery in Rome was based on position. You were born into slavery oftentimes, or you went deep into debt and had to become an indentured servant to pay off debt. But it wasn't a matter of you are less as a human because you are this color or that color. And that's where the depravity of man really took off with slavery in our history, was it was dehumanizing. But even so, what's remarkable to me in looking back in the history of America is to see the freedom among black slaves as they worshipped Jesus. That they discovered, even in the fields, even under the whip, they discovered a freedom in Jesus Christ that went way beyond their circumstance. 
And that's the freedom that we're talking about. Again, Rome was not America, and despite class treatment, they were at least considered human. But let's, let's talk about just for a minute what's fair in culture. What, what's fair? Let me ask you this question. What do we deserve? What do you deserve? I mean, really think about this. What have you earned? <laughs> why aren't we all slaves? Why, why are we this morning, to every last person in this sanctuary, sitting on comfortable chairs? In a climate-controlled room, dressed, having had breakfast, and if you didn't before you got here, I'm sure you did when you got here. Why do we get this? I so often look around this church, this fellowship. I look at people. I look at what God has done for us. And I say, Lord, why? I don't understand. We don't deserve this. Thank you. Praise you. But what do we deserve? And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In Him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. We don't deserve that. But we've been given it. That's freedom. That's freedom beyond circumstance. It's not a right... And it's not a gift, it is grace. So I remind you, whatever your situation in life, understand that your culture, our culture, is temporary. The gospel's eternal. What happens in America today, or Rome 2,000 years ago, will pass one way or the other. The gospel will not. The freedom I have in Christ Jesus goes on forever. And so both prisoners and slaves on earth alike are in what I would call an interim incarceration, whereas the good news frees men and women forever. So whatever your job is, whatever your station is, whatever your physical well-being or lack of well-being is, you are free in Christ Jesus with an eternal freedom. Now there's another reason I believe Paul doesn't overtly condemn Philemon as a slave owner. Rick, are we ever going to read this letter? Yeah, a week from Wednesday. Stop bugging me. There's another reason that Paul doesn't condemn Philemon and condemn slavery, and that is secondly that God transcends comprehension. Not only does the gospel transcends culture, but God transcends comprehension. He doesn't demand that the slave owner free the slave, nor does He demand that the slave be freed before offering salvation. Now, I don't get that. Because the flesh says, let's fix things, and then we will find each other acceptable. God says, I'm going to make you acceptable before we start fixing things. I'm going to save you before you have anything worthy of saving. He meets us right where we are. Masters, slaves, inmates, runaways. He meets us where we are. Look at Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. And yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. I mean, aren't you glad that Philemon didn't have to change his life to be saved? Because if he did, you do. If someone else has to change their life and make everything right to be acceptable to God, so do the rest of us. We all have to make things right. But God, He he transcends comprehension. He is patient with our sanctification. Man, I was foolish last year. Man, you know, ten years ago, I can't even believe what I was thinking when I did some of the things that I did. Thirty years back, some of my perspectives that I was so sure of were completely wrong. Praise God. 
that He was patient with me. Shouldn't we extend the same patience to each other? And to the non-believer? I've said here recently, how long did it take you to receive the Gospel? How many years did God work in your life before it finally clicked and you gave your life to Jesus? And maybe you still haven't. How long has God been waiting on you and patient with you? Not requiring you to fix everything. I look back to things I approved of as an early Christian that I would never approve of today. Which is why I always caution younger Christians and younger believers, don't be so sure of yourself. Be sure of Jesus. Be sure of the Word of God, but but be careful with what you think is right, because you will learn many things are not. But back when I approved of things, or did things, or said things I would not do today, was I not saved? Was I not still a child of God through Jesus Christ? Yes, I was. So God does not approve slavery. He recognized the reality and He lets redemption change the heart. Sometimes that takes time. Back to Philemon. The story continues. Onesimus ran away. Philemon has this slave, Onesimus, and he becomes a runaway slave and somehow, we don't know how, we will not know how till we get to Jesus This runaway, by the hand of divine providence, ended up in the presence of Paul in Rome. It's a long way from Colossae to Rome, about a thousand miles. Somehow he gets to Paul. And somehow they begin to talk. And you have this marvelous meeting of the prisoner and the slave. Together. And both become set free by Jesus. Paul, already free. Onesimus, the runaway slave, becomes free. I wonder, did Onesimus know Paul? Did he intend to run from Colossae to Rome? To to see Paul? To appeal to Paul? I, I don't know. I mean, it's possible. Because we know the Philemon became a Christian through the ministry of Paul. So perhaps Onesimus was there and saw this Paul talking with his master Philemon and thought, he's the guy I need to see. But again, we don't know. My best guess is that God, in His providence, led this runaway directly to the confinement of Paul. That it was God's intention to bring him to Paul, who then would be best used to offer true freedom to this slave. And it really does get that personal. But then, beyond that, and that personal moment in the life of Onesimus, which was so important to Jesus, the life of the church for 2,000 years will be affected by this journey of the slave to the confinement of Paul in Rome. For Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. That's part of the marvelous story. Now imagine this. So all that's taken place. Onesimus has run away. He's found Paul. He's met Paul. He's been saved. He's given his life to Jesus. Now he's been serving Paul and helping Paul, who himself is in prison in Rome. And now he's come back. And he's holding the letter. And he goes up to his master's house and shuffling his feet, knocks on the door. Philemon opens the door and there stands Onesimus and he hands him the letter. And he stands there, hat in hand, as Philemon begins to read. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. What's that mean? Onesimus was born again through the ministry of Paul, in prison. Who formerly, verse 11, was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. That's marvelous. Because Paul uses puns. It thrills me. Formerly useless. Now get that. Onesimus, the useless runaway. That's who he was when he got to Paul in Rome. He was the useless runaway. Why was Onesimus useless? Well, we don't know that either. That's part of the obscurity of the letter. Maybe he was a flake. Flaky slave. They can never find Onesimus. Where's Onesimus? He's never doing his work. We ask him to do the work. Is he doing the work? No, he's out there in the back wandering around aimlessly. I don't know. Maybe he was a no-account lazy sluggard. 
who then up and took off on Philemon. And by the way, he may have stolen from his master on the way out the door. Check verse 18. Paul says, I'll pay back anything that was taken. Hmm. But this is where the letter gets so meaningful and so touching as Paul uses a profound pun. They say puns are the lowest form of humor. I completely disagree. But this use of a wordplay here, Paul does this and it's marvelous. The name Onesimus means useful. Note that. Verse 11, who was formerly useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Well, that's the name Onesimus. It means useful. It means profitable. It was a typical Roman slave name. Sometimes given to a slave, a child born into slavery, because it just meant useful, that this this will be of value to me at some point. Sometimes just given to a slave as a new name to indicate this is what's expected of you, that you make yourself useful around here. But now Paul is saying, Onesimus, useful, didn't work out so well with this one, did it, Phil? He really wasn't very useful to you, was he? You were looking for useful, you got useless. And this is where we begin to answer the question, why is Philemon in the Bible at all? A useless runaway slave has now become a useful repentant son. The change is the change of anyone who comes to Jesus. Useless runaway is now useful in repentance. And isn't that the recurring theme throughout all of Scripture? Don't we see this again and again? Adam and Eve ran and hid themselves from God in the garden. They were the first runaways. Then you've got Jacob who ran from his promised position. You've got Moses who fled Egypt with a murder rap on his head. You have David who fled Jerusalem from his own son Absalom trying to usurp his throne. Elijah, the prophet was a runaway, God had to track him down to a cave on Mount Horeb 200 miles from Israel where he had fled to. Of course, then you've got Jonah, big runaway. I mean, he defines the genre, doesn't he? And every disciple of Jesus Christ fled from him on the night of his betrayal. Runaways. It is a theme of humanity in Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 26.31, You will all fall away because of Me this night. For it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You're going to run. You're going to flee. And they did. And each one of these runaways throughout history felt at some time useless. Every son, every daughter has been A prodigal. No wonder that story, that parable of Jesus has such import to us even now in our lives. The prodigal son, the runaway useless boy who wears out his father's inheritance, who has nothing left, and then finally makes his way back home pitifully, hat in hand, hoping to get a job as a slave just so he can eat. And how many people have found themselves wandering into a church or into the presence of the Lord just saying, could I just maybe sit here? And maybe just... I mean, I don't deserve anything from Jesus, but can I just listen? Is forgiveness even possible? It is the story of the runaway. Can you relate to this? Are you this morning the runaway? Have you been running from God, feeling useless and worthless and unprofitable in your life and finding that everything you try to do doesn't work? Trying to get into a position of freedom and yet you still feel in chains? Listen, there are two ways the Onesimus in the rest of us become useful. Two ways, even after being runaways, we become useful again. Verse 15. 
For perhaps, Paul writes, He was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have Him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? He says, If then you regard me a partner, accept Him as you would me. And get this, this is the theme of the letter. This is the heart of Philemon. It is one word. Fellowship. Fellowship. That's not the word I expected, Rick. Well, it wasn't the word I expected either. But note this. Two ways that Onesimus becomes useful even when he was useless. Number one, Onesimus was made useful in communion. Communion? You mean like going to the Lord's table? No, I mean koinonia. That's the word. And Paul uses the word twice in this letter. This is the bright theme of Philemon. Summed up in a word, the reason I believe this letter is in the Bible, and it is koinonia. It is the usefulness of fellowship. Paul uses the word twice in verse 6. Where he says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. The fellowship, the koinonia. And he uses the word a second time down in verse 17 where he says, If then you regard me as a partner, koinonos, from the root of koinonia, accept him as you would me. This is marvelous. This is in, in a little letter, in this personal missive, this is how fellowship works in the church. In fact, this is what the church of Jesus' people is supposed to be about. If you're visiting, listen, this is what we're supposed to be about. This is what we're aiming for. This is what we want to be. If you are part of this fellowship, understand, this is the heart. Masters, slaves, prisoners, and runaways, we have all become family. It's who we now are. Fellowship. Koinonia. It changes us. It makes us who were at one time useless, now suddenly we are useful. You need to understand and believe that every single person in this fellowship is useful, is necessary is part of this fellowship and why we are together. I know some sit here and go, well, what's my part? I don't have anything to give. Yes, you do. Your presence, as far as I'm concerned, is even enough. But it's more than that. God has a useful reason for you being in fellowship. That's what koinonia is about. And suddenly we become useful. Onesimus, who was the useless runaway, now has become Paul's child, verse 10. His son in the faith. Better than that, in verse 16, he's become both Paul's and Philemon's brother. This one who was your useless slave is now your brother, Philemon, Paul writes, and he's my brother as well. And that changes everything. We can even see the change right here in the letter. Just between these three principal players, all three men have something difficult they have to do because of their new fellowship. Paul has to send Onesimus, his very heart, back to Philemon. And what Paul wants to do as a parent, he wants to keep Onesimus with him. He wants his friend, his new brother in the Lord, his fellow servant for the gospel with him because Onesimus has become important to Paul, useful to Paul. But Paul knows in fellowship, I have to send him back. Philemon must accept and forgive Onesimus for whatever has taken place, both his running away and perhaps his theft. Philemon has to accept him. Why? Because he's now a brother in the Lord. And Onesimus, he's got to go back and face his master. So the implication is, as a brother, Onesimus can no longer be a slave. He is now useful, and now all three men are drawn together in this marvelous koinonia. As Paul wrote in Galatians 6 verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So you think about Onesimus. Can you imagine him on the road from Colossae 
I mean, after a couple of days' journey, as his heart begins to settle down a bit, being a runaway, and the paranoia begins to calm, and he realizes he's not being immediately tracked, and so he starts to make that long trek to Rome. And on his way there, what is he thinking? How many times did he think himself a complete and utter failure? I am so useless. What am I even doing? Hey, the communion of the saints changes that. I think of people on their way to church, about ready to make that long haul to a Sunday morning service, and all the way there feeling like, what am I doing? They're not going to accept me there. They're going to take one look at me and usher me out the door. They're all going to know. Because my sin life is obvious to me. It must be to them as well. I'm useless. I'm a failure. Hey, the communion of the saints changes all that. No longer a slave. No longer useless. You matter. Because in Jesus Christ, family matters. And we are made all the more useful in communion. Galatians 6.10, Paul said, Let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, made useful in communion, but here's the second and most important thing. The jury is out on whether or not Paul intended this, what I'm about to share with you. I'm convinced the Holy Spirit did, because it's amazing to me. Verse 10, again, listen. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Now, I've already told you Onesimus means useless. Or useful. It means useful, and Paul makes a play on the word. But when he makes a play on the word, he doesn't use the word Onesimus again. He uses a different word. It's a synonym for useful. Onesimus means useful, so does this other word. And this other synonym that Paul uses, he uses both for useful and useless, depending on how the word is written. And what's not very obvious in the English is fascinating in the Greek. Listen, useful is eukrestos, which means to be of good use. And useless is ah, which is the negative form, Ah, that is no use or useless. Ah, Christos. Euchrestos and Ah, Christos. A first century Roman historian named Suetonius, I think, can help us with this. He used a similar wordplay. He claimed that unrest in Rome was because of the instigation of Christos. Which all scholars who read that agree. He was referring to the useless disputes of Jews in Rome over whether Jesus was the Christos. The Christos. When Paul writes this, listen, what he says in the Greek is, my child Onesimus was formerly Christos to you, and now he is Christos to me. Do you get it? Do you see that Onesimus is made useful in Christ. And that's the great point. When I am Christos, that is, no Christ, without Christ, I'm useless. I have no eternal value. I'm stuck in the limited time of today. But when I become Christos, that is, well with Christ, now I am useful to eternity. Now I'm a child of the King. Now I belong to Jesus and I have become more useful in eternity than I ever was in the, earth, in, in the world. Eucrestos. Suddenly, in Christ Jesus, who Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 is the substance, I realize how much I am valued by God. I want you to get that this morning. If nothing else, the single greatest repudiation of the uselessness or worthlessness of your life is this. Jesus Christ died for you. And when I talk to my kids, as I have through now four of them, going through their teenage years, and coming into that place that so many teenagers struggle with, and that is my value, my worth, my usefulness. I have said the same thing to all three of them. No matter how useless you feel you are, Jesus died for you. What does that tell you? 
Take away everything that you've ever done in your life. Jesus died for you. What does that say? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is of greatest value? That if He is who He claimed to be, that is God in the flesh, He is the greatest one who has ever lived on the planet, and He died for you. What does that say about you? Now I can pity myself. And I can say, well, I'm just not worth anything. Well, you are worth the blood of Jesus as far as He is concerned. I'm not sure what else makes me useful. That alone, that thought alone. Paul says, Romans 5, verse 6, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You might say while we were useless. When we could do nothing for ourselves. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know how useful you are to God? How much you matter to Him? Man, stop running away and listen. Colossians 1.27 God willed to make known to us what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. We proclaim Him, that is Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man and woman with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. If you try to find usefulness outside of Jesus, you will never get there. You will never arrive. You will always find that you're just not quite good enough. But the moment you receive Jesus by faith, you have become valued unto eternity. And that is the lesson in Philemon. That we are made useful in communion, accepted into a family where perhaps no other family on earth would accept you, this one will. And in that useful communion, we become far more useful in Christ Jesus. Transformed, set free by the Gospel. Philemon verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother Especially to me, Paul writes, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. It is one of three verses in Scripture that refer to us no longer being slaves. The other two, Romans 8.15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It is the story of the prodigal son. That is the letter to Philemon. And that is the theme of Scripture. That though we have run away, yet when we come home, our Father is waiting to declare our sonship again. Praise God. Paul, Onesimus, Philemon, and you and me. Useful in communion, useful, worthy in Christ. And that was the prophecy, wasn't it? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, Jesus said, to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, those two words just ring in my heart. Prisoners and slaves. And Lord, my sense is that all of us, at one time or another... And possibly even this morning find ourselves either prisoners or slaves. Some are prisoners, Father, today. Having given their lives to Jesus. Loving You, Lord. Knowing they've been freed by the Gospel. And yet they are imprisoned in some aspect of life. And I would pray for everyone in that place. That the freedom of the Gospel of Jesus would go out. That the Word of God would not be chained. 
that You would use us and fill us with the joy of our freedom, even, Father, behind bars. I pray for everyone who believes themselves this morning to be a slave. That is not worthy, not valued, useless in this world. That we might all find our usefulness and our worth in Jesus. I pray, Father, that there wouldn't be a single person who could walk out of here this morning without at least knowing that you gave up everything because you love him or her. Thank you, Father, for your word to us. And now I pray that you would seal it to our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.